Hello, and welcome to Church in Maine, the podcast that's at the intersection of faith and modern life. I'm Dennis Sanders, your host. Church in Maine is a podcast that looks for God in the midst of issues affecting church and the larger society. You can learn more about the podcast, listen to past episodes, and donate by checking us out at churchinmaine.org or churchinmaine.substack.com. Consider subscribing to the podcast on your favorite podcast app and leave a review. That helps others find this podcast. So I want to start out by talking a little bit about um, something I did this past summer. This past summer, I went to Louisville, Kentucky. That's where um, the 2023 General Assembly of the Christian Church Disciples of Christ was being held. That is my home denomination, the denomination I was ordained into a little bit over 20 years ago. Um, like a lot of, of other church conventions, the gathered assembly looks at important issues and usually votes on them. Um, being that we're a congregational church, uh, usually those um, resolutions don't have kind of the force of the, um, any force other than kind of the sense of the assembly, but they do matter. Um, one of those issues that was taken up um was Israel-Palestine. And there was a non-binding resolution that um, wanted the assembly to call Israel an apartheid state. And I remember looking at that um, resolution actually a few weeks before General Assembly, and I realized I was opposed to this measure. I just did not like it. I didn't think it was fair. Um, It just seemed not right. Um, when it did come before General Assembly at uh, General Assembly, I voted on the measure, and I was in a distinct minority. That resolution passed with a large portion of um, those that were present voting in favor. And I can remember leaving the plenary hall feeling somewhat disturbed. Now, I'm someone that believes in the in the two state solution. And I'm someone that also thinks that there's a lot about to criticize about how Israel has treated Palestinians in the past. But I totally disagreed with equating Israel with apartheid-era South Africa. To me, that made no sense. And the disciples are far from the only mainline Protestant denomination that has labeled Israel an apartheid state. In fact, in uh, 2022, the Presbyterian Church USA also voted in favor of calling Israel an apartheid state. And earlier that year, the stated clerk of the denomination called Israeli policies towards Palestinians as, quote-unquote, enslavement. Then stated uh, clerk Herbert um, Nelson said during his Martin Luther King Day reflection the following, Quote, the continued occupation in Palestine, Israel, is a 21st century slavery and should be abolished immediately, unquote. The United Church of Christ and a conference of the United Methodist Church have also come out with strong language against Israel. So, what's going on here? Is this a legitimate criticism of Israeli policy, or is there something deeper going on here? And what do these policies mean, especially in the wake of the October 7th attacks in Israel by the terrorist group Hamas? In this episode, I talk with the Reverend Todd Stavrikos. Todd is an ordained pastor in the Presbyterian Church USA. He's been active in the organization uh, Presbyterians for Middle East Peace, a grassroots group of Presbyterian lay and clergy volunteers who want the PCUSA, to be an effective peacemaker in the Middle East. He's also involved in a, a new organization, Pathways for Peace, a nonprofit education organization that works to support collaboration between mainline churches and the Jewish community. He's on staff with the Presbyterian of Philadelphia and also the pastor of Gladwin Presbyterian Church in Gladwin, Pennsylvania. We'll talk a lot about what's been going on within mainline churches and what does this mean between the relationship between mainline churches and the Jewish community. So let's hear from Todd Stavrikos about the mainline churches 
and Israel and the Jewish community. Thanks for joining me this afternoon, Todd. Well, it's a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me to be on the show. Well, I think the first thing I wanted to um, start off with is just kind of uh, some basic questions about you. Um, sure. I know that you are uh, a pastor um, in, in the Philadelphia Presbytery and also have some work on the, in, the, in the Presbytery as well. Yeah, I, I wear many hats. Yes, you uh, do. <laughs> So I'm the pastor at Gladwin Presbyterian Church, which, as you noted, is just outside the city of Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a suburban uh, region of the city. Um, I also do some consulting with the Presbytery overall with its public witness uh, efforts, uh, where we focus on uh, some of the major issues that are hitting the city of gun violence and mm -hmm. Uh, environmental concerns, ecological concerns, uh, and immigration. Um, so that's another thing that I do. Um, in the past, I've been active with Presbyterians for Middle East Peace, uh, but more recently been more active with Pathways, which is a multi-denominational uh, entity that seeks to sort of build up the middle, uh, the center uh, in the debate uh, over Israel and Palestine. Mm -hmm. uh, working uh, primarily with many of the groups in Israel and Palestine that are trying to build bridges um, to provide uh, for a stronger place for peaceful efforts um, because the extremists have, you know, right now the extremists control the, the dialogue and it gets us nowhere. Um, can you tell me a little bit about your work with Presbyterians for Middle East Peace and, and the organization itself? Sure. So, uh, um, Presbyterians for Middle East Peace uh, kind of came out of the Presbyterian the, the Presbyterian uh, Jewish dialogue that was taking place in the eighties and nineties, and uh, PFMEP really came together as an entity uh, when the denomination began discussing divestment, mm -hmm. um, and PFMEP really kind of most of its work was revolving around the issue of divestment and trying to, to defeat the calls for divestment, um, believing that it was sort of like the wrong policy uh, for the wrong issues at the wrong time. Um, mm -hmm. uh, we think the fact that Presbyterian Church has very little say in what happens in, in Israel and Palestine right now certainly uh, speaks to the reality of what our concerns were back then. Um, since that time, it's, you know, it's been a loose organization um, made up of clergy and lay members uh, of the denomination who are concerned with the increasingly shrill voices that we're hearing in the denomination as it relates uh, to Israel. Um, we think that the, the strong connections that have developed between the denomination and the BDS movement is something that has hurt our standing with the American Jewish community who for the most part share our very same concerns about uh, what has happened in the state of Israel and the lack of the peace process. Um, so we found ourselves alien, alienated from partners for peace um, because of the work that supporters of the BDS movement within the denomination have done. Um, and, you know, I, I think many in the national offices um, have bought into the BDS uh, narrative. Uh, so while the denomination hasn't necessarily made any statements in support of the BDS, we have entities like uh, the Peace and Compassion Office, as well as the Israel-Palestine uh, Mission Network, who are wholeheartedly a part of the BDS movement um, in terms of what they advocate, in terms of how they talk, that sort of thing. Um, and so our work has been mostly to provide a, a, an alternative uh, vision 
with alternative strategies of how we could be better uh, moving to support the peace efforts. Um, I think one of the things that unfortunately has occurred, uh, and we're seeing it in the most this most recent war, is many of the mainline denominations, including PCUSA, have been using rhetoric of saying that two peace or the two-state scenario solution is over. Mm-hmm. And when you say things like that, because words matter, if it's going to be one state, then whose state is it going to be? Mm-hmm. Um, you get the maximalist right-wing Israelis who will say it's going to be a Jewish state and there will be no Palestinians allowed. And you get the maximalist Palestinians who say, we are going to drive the, the Israelis, the Jews, out of the land. Um, we can't get away from that. We have extremists on both sides. They will never be happy um, until there are two states living side by side. The Palestinian state for the Palestinian community uh, and the Israeli state for the Jewish community. Um, and what we're seeing is, you know, Hamas you know, an an atrocious, murderous organization um, who has no designs on peace, uh, whose only goal is to kill Jews. Mm -hmm. Um, This is not a liberating entity. If they were a liberating entity, they would be providing shelter for their own people right now, but they're not. Uh, You know, Hamas has once again put their own people in jeopardy. Uh, Hamas has shown who it is with just the ruthless atrocities that occurred on October 7th, uh, just unspeakable. Um, and a large part of that can be attributed to some of the language that they've heard coming from the states, the progressive communities of that have been highly critical of Israel, who have labeled Israel all sorts of things, an apartheid state, a racist state, uh, a, a, nothing but a colonial state. And they see that rhetoric, they hear that rhetoric, and they take actions to further isolate Israel. Um, whenever Hamas needs to get PR, they launch rockets. Mm-hmm. It, it serves them. They, they are able to raise money off the issue um, because if they know Israel will respond as any state would to an attack. They, they will then claim you know, a disproportional response um, Israel will try and strike Hamas sites. Uh, we know now through all the investigation that's taking place that Hamas puts command and control facilities uh, under hospitals, um, inside UN buildings. They store weapons in schools and hospitals and UN buildings. And they want civilian casualties because that plays up to their view that Israel just indiscriminately kills Palestinians. And we know that that's not the case. Any rational person knows that that's not the case. Um, But we see the influence in in the fact that we have so many people speaking about how this is a genocide. Mm -hmm. Uh, There have been unfortunate civilian casualties. Innocent people have died. And I grieve over that. But a genocide would mean that all 2 million residents of Gaza are at risk, and we're not seeing that. Nor are we seeing anything equivalent to genocide taking place in the West Bank. And that doesn't even account for the millions of Palestinians who live in places like Lebanon, Jordan, and Syria until the, waiting for a two-state scenario. So all this language that gets used um, – mostly on the progressive side of of the political spectrum, just further creates a fertile ground for Hamas to act. And PCUSA and other mainline denominations are part of that problem. You know, the reason, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is because there there have been kind of two events that have kind of made me wonder about what's going on. Um, The first event was that um, about now, 10 years ago, 10, 20, 10, 15 years ago, I used to work for um, the Presbyterian Twin Cities area. So okay. I was uh, was there when we um, when the PCUSA had their General Assembly in Minneapolis. Okay. And um, that there were discussions at that point um, uh, between 
the the church and and the Jewish community. Um, I even sat in on a meeting with local Jewish leaders um, to talk about um, Middle East issues. And I remember a few years later, um, a document came out from the PCUSA. And the way that it was framed was very interesting in that it talked a lot about, I guess, what we would call now settler colonialism, which as I looked at it, thought, this doesn't, this looks, doesn't look right. Um, and as someone who's always kind of believed in a two-state solution, um, that, you know, both sides have valid claims, but both sides have done things that are wrong, right. and and that it was very one-sided. Right. Um, and that kind of troubled me. And then this summer, uh, my own denomination, the Christian Church Disciples of Christ, had a resolution, um, and they're non-binding, but still, um, that called Israel an apartheid state. Right. Um, and I was kind of surprised how many people supported that viewpoint. I was in the minority. I did not think that that was correct. Um, and speaking as someone who remembers the 1980s and remembers South Africa and knows and has kind of followed what goes on in Israel. And I'm not going to say that the um, the occupied territories and both have necessarily been wonderful examples of you know peace and harmony, but it doesn't seem like it's that simple. And that just how I do I didn't understand how that could be helpful um, in all of this, and especially how that could be helpful to our relations with the Jewish community. And so I've just been kind of wondering what is it within the mainline churches that in many cases are always so concerned about, and, and I think rightly, things like racism um, did not seem to care much or have really put much thought when it comes to these issues that how that can affect the, our relations with the Jewish community. Yeah, I, and I think you're putting the, the finger on the trends that, that we've seen over the last 20 years and maybe even longer. Um, most of our mainline denominations are, are sort of center-left um, Protestant communities. Um, we, we speak in the language of peace and justice. Mm -hmm. and, and a lot of what we do is, is cloaked around you know, peace and justice, the idea of reconciliation through Christ and in Christ. Um, which, which is absolutely right. Um, mm -hmm. But we also tend to apply to the typical Western white perspective of one size fits all. Mm -hmm. We don't look at the complexities and differences. We just think every issue between either minority communities or um, the haves and have nots, we, you know, or whatever group is marginalized or oppressed, we just think it's 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 a cookie cutter mentality, and we apply the same philosophies to all these occasions, and and it doesn't work that way, and it never has. But you know, this is the to me, this is the Western mindset run amok, which is kind of funny that all these churches would say that they're not that they're trying to get away from the Western mindset, mm -hmm. right? Um, and yet it, it's running amok. Um, it's, it's the white perspective. And in, in this scenario with Israel, um, everybody has focused on the occupation, which is not a good thing. It, it, no. it, the occupation is horrific. Anybody who has seen what the average Palestinian has to go through on a regular occasion, on a daily existence, the humiliation of, of living in the occupation – it, it's a horrendous thing. However, as as wrong as the occupation is, we don't hold the Palestinians accountable for any of their actions that have occurred in the past um, or the present that leads us to a situation where the occupation is still in place. The occupation is still in place because we have not agreed to a peace arrangement. Mm -hmm. You know, Israel... Technically, of the five nations that it, that it was at war in 1948, after the partition plan of the UN was issued, out of those five states, it's still technically at war with three of them. Hmm. It's only been a peace agreement made between the Kingdom of Jordan, which just recently occurred in the last 20 years, and, and uh, Egypt. Those are the two uh, countries 
countries that have a peace arrangement. Syria does not have a, a peace deal with Israel, does not even recognize Israel. Same thing with Lebanon, same thing with Iraq. So the occupation is still an occupation because nobody's been able to agree to the deal or a deal on what the Palestinian state would look like. If Israel wanted that land, they would have declared it their own a long time ago. Mm -hmm. And and so what some people are saying, you know, we need to end the occupation. Well, what does that look like? You just want Israel to claim the land, to annex the land, in which case there is no state of Palestine? Not now, not ever? Um, is there going to be a peace or a peace deal? You know, we thought we were on the right track with the Oslo agreements. Um, and, I'm, and I'm not saying that the right wing in Israel was very helpful in this because they weren't. But it was Arafat and the Palestinians who walked away at the last moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and then instead of the peace deal, we have the second intifada. Um, so we need to hold the Palestinians responsible for their actions as well that have not led to peace. Uh, so a lot of what we're seeing is just, it's not revisionist history, but it's incomplete history. It's people only looking at one side. Um, people are always talking about, well, Israel has not lived up to the UN resolutions. Well, neither have the Arab states. You know, the UN Resolution 242 that called, you know, that called for an end of, you know, the occupied territories also called upon all the, the belligerent parties to recognize the state of Israel. They haven't done that. You know, so when are we going to, as Christians, you know, my perspective is as Christians, we need to be holding both parties' feet to the fire to get peace. But when we side with one against the other, we then don't have any ability to be a peacemaker. Hmm. And all of our emphasis is on sanctioning the state of Israel. In in all the actions that, that the Presbyterian Church's General Assembly has taken, we have never once condemned Hamas. Why is that? I mean, especially... You know, we, we've seen kind of the brutality of what they've done. Why can't we say, I mean, and can't say that? We have, unfortunately, we have people in the denomination who believe that Hamas is a national uh, liberating party. They are the freedom fighters. They are the resistance. Hamas is none of those things. And and we have people in the denomination who are fooled into thinking that Hamas and Hezbollah are freedom fighters. We have leaders of our own denomination who have met with the leaders of Hezbollah. Wow. I mean, so how can we be Christian, Christ-like, advocating for peace when we are not condemning terrorist activities? When we are meeting with terrorists, but we're not asking them to transform their hearts, we're giving them refuge through the words and rhetoric that we use. That that can't stand. And, you know, as you pointed out, everything is one-sided. So is it any wonder that we're finding the extremists in Israel, in power, and the extremists like Hamas taking advantage of the situation because we've emboldened both. Hmm. So what do you think that this does for or has done with these stances when it comes to relations with the Jewish community here in the United States? Um, you know, obviously that many within that, that community have ties and in many cases even have relatives um, that live in Israel. Um, what has that done to that? So in the recent, it, it, with the recent war, um, the overwhelming sentiment that I'm getting from my peers in the Jewish community, my friends, colleagues, people I work with on a daily basis, is that they feel abandoned. Hmm. They hear They hear the statements that don't condemn Hamas. They hear the statements that sort of 
blames Israel for what happened on October 7th. Um, and, and they feel abandoned by their friends. Um, the Jewish community, you know, we talk about in our, in our, uh, racial conversations, we always talk about the lasting impact that trauma has on families and how the trauma can be ingrained into DNA. Mm-hmm. So that several generations after a traumatic experience can still be suffering from trauma. Well, what do we think has been happening over 2000 years to the Jewish community who have suffered from the trauma of anti-Semitism, uh, pogroms, um, not being able to, to live in peace and now have situations where once again, they're being attacked on, on streets in the United States. Students, college students are trapped in library buildings as, as violent protesters are outside banging on doors. Um, students, Jewish students are harassed walking to class who have nothing to do with the actions of the state of Israel. Nothing. So right now, the relationship of the Jewish community and the Presbyterian church is non-existent. Individual congregations have relationships. Mm-hmm. There, is abs- there is no dialogue between national Jewish organizations and PCUSA as a denomination. They've written them off. They do not view they do not view the Presbyterian Church USA as an ally in anything. Um, and we, you know, Presbyterians in particular have had a long history of working side by side with with Jewish synagogues and and communities uh, on on all sorts of social justice issues, and they're still happening. You know, God bless those congregations who are continued to be in solidarity with their Jewish neighbors, which does not mean that they're supporting the state of Israel, but it means that they're supporting their Jewish neighbors. But Presbyterian Church USA, there is no relationship uh, whatsoever. Um, And like I said, you know, the Jewish community feels completely abandoned by many of the mainline denominations. They see the statements that come out from the Presbyterians and the Lutherans and Episcopalians things that that do not directly condemn Hamas, um, that are all wishy-washy and talking about how this is just something part of the larger conflict. What happened on October 7th was not part of the conflict. This that It was an act of outright aggression towards the Jewish people in Israel and around the world. Do you think that any of this could be related to or be even described as anti-Semitism. Um, I haven't said that because I'm okay. you know, speaking as an African-American, sometimes you don't want to make everything racism. <laughs> so you don't want right. to make in this case, but you know, I guess getting your viewpoint, do you see this as anti-Semitism? Well, but as an African-American, when you see racism, mm-hmm. you call it out. Right. Yes, you do. Yep. I mean, yep. you don't use it as an excuse necessarily for everything, no. but you call it out when it's real. Mm-hmm. The Jewish community is calling out anti-Semitism, and as a white man, if you said something was racist, I cannot say to you, "No, it's not." Yeah, it's not my place to say that. Right. Just like as a white man, if a woman says that's sexist and misogynist, I can't say, "No, it's not." I'm a white man. I don't have any right to say that it is or it isn't. And yet we as a community, when a Jewish community or you know person says that's anti-Semitic, we say, no, it's not. And we act like we are the authority. Mm-hmm. The Jewish community will decide what's anti-Semitic, much like the African-American community decides what's racist. Mm-hmm. And, but we, this is one minority group that we do not allow their emotions to be truly held. What is happening is anti-Semitic. And you can look at the strains of 2,000 years of examples of anti-Semitism, and you can see how they've just regenerated in new ways and in new forms. But it's the same old thing. Anti-Semitism dehumanizes the Jewish people. The sheer fact that we don't even recognize that their claim of anti-Semitism is legitimate dehumanizes the Jewish community. Hmm. 
So in that fact, you know, that we like Presbyterians will come up with our own definition of anti-Semitism that doesn't take into account what the Jewish community thinks. That is anti-Semitism. We are saying that their opinions aren't important. Now, if we were to say that about the African-American community, oh, Lord, there would be there'd be riots. And, and you know, and I don't mean like African-Americans rioting. I mean, white members of the community would be up in arms if we did something like that. But not when it comes to the Jews. No, no, no. We, we have different standards for the Jews. So it's anti-Semitism, pure and simple. Why is that? I mean, I can remember and, and do whenever we you know go through the Gospels and, you know, being very careful to not preach anything that even seems anti-Semitic. And I, I think that there is wisdom in that. But when it comes to this, where you have a case where people, Jews have been slaughtered, that doesn't, we don't seem to be as careful. I mean, why? And I don't want to sound like a one-trick pony, <laughs> but that is the evil of anti-Semitism. I mean, it, it has been, since the church started it, and since the church for 2,000 years, and even today, promotes it through really bad exegetical work of scripture, you know, I never want to hear how a Christian pastor preaches from the Gospel of John. Because most of us understand that when the Gospel is talking about the Jews, the, the author is talking about the religious leaders. Mm -hmm. And yet, time and again, you'll hear a pastor talking about how the Jews don't get it and, and, and just you know, starts to rip into the, you know, the Jewish community of the day, which then draws inferences from the average person who's listening that, well, if the Jews were wrong then, they still have to be wrong now. And so it, within our DNA as Christians, we have anti-Semitism. And we have, to, we have to root it out of ourselves. Hmm. You know, and, you know, colleagues and I have worked on, you know, a preacher's guide um, of how to preach from Jewish scriptures with integrity. Of, of not realizing that every single prophetic voice points to Jesus. That <laughs> there were real prophets who are speaking to the people of Israel within their own context of what God is doing in the world. You know, but, but you find a Christian pastor reading any prophetic text, and he's going to draw it back or she's going to draw it back to Jesus as if the reality of what that person was talking about is not real. But that's why it's so difficult for us to get away from anti-Semitism because it's in our DNA. And if hmm. and unless we're trying to root it out, it just sits there. Hmm. So in this kind of with the recent thing as of October 7th, um, and you kind of alluded to this earlier about some of the responses from mainline churches, um, you know, how have, you know, the churches responded um, and how should they be responding? The, many of them have gone through a process of they've made a statement. They've had to remake the statement um, because they because someone's pointed out the error of their statements. Uh, unfortunately, most of them have couched this with within the conflict, um, and and I can understand why you would do that. But the reality is, October seventh was different. Mm -hmm. And you can't be a student of history and not look at it and say, yeah, this was different. This was different from ev every other form of military constructs that have occurred, you know, since the founding in 1948 between uh, of Israel and, and so forth. This was a flat out massacre with no goal other than to take lives. And the fact that our denominations couldn't just, just couldn't just condemn the act of October 7th and say, this doesn't mean, you know, 
you know, the response should have been, we condemn in the strongest possible terms, this actions of Hamas. We understand as faith communities that there has been an ongoing conflict and that there is an occupation which is not good um, and that we believe that both the Palestinians and Israelis deserve a nation and a state of their own. But that the events of October 7th do not further that goal. As a matter of fact, they actually have weakened that goal. Uh, And so we condemn all those who have uh, uh, um, shed innocent blood for no other reason than to shed blood. That would have been a simple statement, probably, you know, even worded a little, a little better, but that could have been the statement that was made that gets the point across of saying this was beyond the pale and we need peace. And why do you think that they couldn't even do that? Because it's difficult for us to give up on our bad habits. For organizations such as Peace USA who have spent 20 years defending Hamas, that would imply that they were wrong about Hamas. Mm-hmm. That means their own actions have blood on their hands. And do they want themselves to be called on the carpet? And so they, you know, try to defend themselves through their actions. Um, there are there are strong voices in the denomination um, who continue to um, pillar, uh, um, who, who continue to speak uh, against Israel in unflattering terms. Um, I, I think most people in, in the Presbyterian Church USA um, believe there should be peace, but don't hold Israel solely responsible for the situation. Um, But most of those folks have other things to do and aren't always going to be voicing an opinion. Whereas the pro Hamas groups within mainline churches, that's all they do. You know, so, so, so they raise uh, outrage at everything. um, And that, tends to be what the denominations pick up. So when you talk about that some of these groups have actually met with Hamas or Hezbollah, um, are these like officials high up in the denomination? Are these, you know, people, you know, on the ground um, kind of missionaries? I mean, do you have examples of, of kind of how that? Yeah. That so, so, I mean, there, there are some that just happen through the course of people going into, for instance, you know, Hamas is the civilian administration in Gaza, mm-hmm. uh, rightly or wrongly, they just are. So anybody who's who speaks to anybody in an official capacity uh, in the Gaza Strip, you know, that's going to be a, a member of Hamas. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that sort of thing happens, and, and and I guess that's fine. What wasn't fine, and it was about a decade ago that uh, officers, meaning professional staff of the denomination, when they were doing a trip uh, through the Middle East, met with leaders of Hezbollah. That's not okay. Mm -hmm. Hezbollah is nothing but a terrorist organization. They don't administer any parts of Lebanon or Syria, even though they run around in Lebanon and Syria. Um, you know, they were active participants in supporting um, uh, Bashir Assad's uh, atrocious government um, during the Syrian civil war. Um, Hezbollah is a destabilizing entity within the nation of Lebanon. There's no reason to meet with Hezbollah. Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, a decade or so ago, members you know of peace usa did that they were criticized then but it's you know and and they apologized for it but the sheer fact that nobody thought to question that 
it leads you to wonder who's making the decisions on these things. Hmm. So where do you see the future kind of, of relationships and when it comes to kind of Middle East peace um, and mainline churches, do you think it's just going to kind of stay the same way? Um, and, you know, will there still be kind of a, a counter movement um, that I, will speak up? Well, I, God is always working in very strange ways. Mm-hmm. So in the darkest possible situation, which I think we have right now, particularly for the people of Gaza, we have a new opportunity. We have a new opportunity. And, and President Biden is, is leading the way. And I know, you know, progressives are upset with kind of how he's responded. But he's been very clear that following what's happening now, there has to be a substantial change. We need to get back to the two-state solution. Mm-hmm. We need to unify the governance of Gaza and the West Bank. We need to rebuild and we need to make sure that peace is the agenda. This is where the church should have always been. And so we have an opportunity again to proclaim peace, to advocate for peace, to hold both parties' feet to the fire, to let them understand that peace cannot occur unless both groups are willing to give up something. For the Palestinians, it might be they have to give up the right of return. Mm -hmm. For the Israelis, it might mean they have to give up control over the Jordan Valley. Right? You have to give up something. But we can't expect Israel to give up something significant if the Palestinians aren't willing to give up something significant. And so we as the church have to say, if you're serious about peace, you need to let go of some of that which you've held on from from past history. Um, and, and so I think that's where we need to be. Now, whether we go there or not, I don't know. Um, I think there are those of us who are in the Pathways Network. That's what we will be advocating for. Um, we will not go away, um, even if the denominations tend to go astray from their commitment to a two-state solution. And they've all spoken about that. That is their stated goals. Um, we're not going to abandon that, even if the denominations do, because I don't think there's any other solution. Could you tell me a little bit about Pathways and what you all are doing? And um, yeah, yeah. So, so Pathways is, is a group that formed about three years ago. Okay. Um, you know, there's an understanding that there is an umbrella entity that's advocating for BDS style resolutions in all of our denominations, and we need to also have a similar uh, messaging and, and supportive entity of how do we confront these anti-Israel and anti-Jewish movements within the mainline denominations. And, and we define the mainline denominations as Presbyterians, Lutherans, Episcopalians, Methodists, um, UCC, disciples, etc. Um, and, and so what we we're trying to do is create an alternative. Um, so how do we create an alternative where we work with our Jewish allies and anybody who's traveled with, with a member of say the reform community or the conservative community, if you've traveled with them to Israel, and if you sat down with leaders of Israel, the people who are strongest and pushing back against what's happening and the occupation are those rabbis or those Jewish leaders. Mm-hmm. They don't believe in the settlement industry. They don't believe in the continued occupation. Many of them are against the the barrier wall. They understand the need for it, but they're against it. Um, and, And so how do we, as progressive Christians, work with the Jewish community who have far more influence on what happens in the state of Israel than we do? How do we work with them to achieve our goals? 
And, and that's what Pathway is trying to do. Um, we're also going to lift up those organizations that are promoting shared society in Israel, um, who are trying to um, bring a, a stronger sense of balance and equity um, to Israeli Arabs, Israeli Palestinians, as compared to their Jewish neighbors, mm-hmm. um, having equal opportunities in the in the economy, in education, in politics. Uh, and so we'll continue working there and we'll continue working with groups that are seeking to improve the average existence of Palestinians in the West Bank. You know, the PA is a corrupt entity um, and the average person struggles, not just because of the occupation, but they struggle because the PA is not using its influence to increase the economy in, in the Palestinian territories. Mm-hmm. So how can we do that? Um, you know, there's a group that I work with, Roots Shorashim, that brings settlers, Israeli settlers and Palestinians together for dialogue and working together um, to better understand each other, to help plant the seeds of peace. They understand that down the road there will be peace, but you need to start planting seeds now. So Pathways is an entity that seeks to support those kinds of groups as well. Um, how do we lift up this middle so that we don't, so the extremists aren't the only voices that we're hearing. Mm. I want to hear from extremist Palestinians, and I certainly don't want to hear from extremist Israelis. I want to hear from the average people who honestly just want to have a decent life for their families. And we're going to lift up their voices uh, and work with them. Mm. So that's what we're about. Um, we are uh, beginning to expand our work in our ministry. Uh, we lead trips, um, probably the most balanced trips that there are going to Israel and Palestine, spending time in both regions, meeting with people on both sides um, to hear stories uh, and to explore ways that we can better support them. Uh, we provide uh, educational opportunities um, helping partner uh, uh, congregations with Jewish communities in their area, um, advocating for better witness uh, against anti-Semitism, um, both inside the church and outside the church. Uh, so that those are our goals, and uh, we're seeking to kind of expand that network uh, to bring more people who share that vision uh, into the fold. Mm. So if people want to know a little bit more about Pathways or um, about Presbyterians from Middle East Peace and also to contact you, what, how can they do that? You want me to give out contact info? <laughs> or web addresses. <laughs> Safer. Well, well the, the best thing is to go to uh, Pathways website, which okay. is uh, Pathways for Peace. So www, uh, Pathways, uh, the number four. Uh, peace.org. Um, you can see what, what we're up to, and then you can subscribe to the newsletters um, that we sent out. Um, uh, you can follow us on social media. Um, fa- you know, we're on Facebook, uh, Twitter, Instagram, um, you know, so we can make all that available to folks, um, you know, and they can follow us and they can contact us through those, those, um, medias as well. All right. Well, Todd Stadrafis, thank you for taking the time to talk. This was really a good, um, good discussion and hopefully can at least provide another voice out there. I think that needs to be heard right now. Well, I, I appreciate you reaching out. Um, I mean, sometimes we do like, feel like we're, we're the lone voice crawling out, calling out in the wilderness. Um, so I appreciate you reaching out and giving us the opportunity to share more of our vision. Um, and, and, you know, if we can help, uh, in, in, in another format, let me know. Um, yeah, we're available. All right. Well, thank you so much. So take care. All right. Thanks, Dennis. God bless. All right.
So thanks again for taking the time to listen. And as usual, there are going to be links of interest related to this episode with Todd. They are in the show notes. I'm actually thinking about doing a solo podcast on my own views on October 7th um, and uh, what that, the aftermath and what it means for mainline churches. Um, Stay tuned to see if that happens. Uh, Just one note is that um, I've moved podcast hosts um, I have moved from Substack to Transistor. Um, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or some other podcast app other than Substack, really nothing is going to change, so you don't have to worry. If you are listening on Substack, um, know that you won't easily, you will, will still be getting emails uh, from me from Church in Maine. Um, there will be a link to uh, the episode. So it'll be there. There will also be included kind of a preview of the episode, um, that you'll get along with, um, with the new episode. Usually you'll see the link for the preview. You can play that in your, um, Substack app. And then there's a link to go to the, um, transistor page, uh, the page on transistor to, um, hear the podcast, uh, the full podcast. So, Um, I do hope that um, you will still continue to listen. Um, Just means a different change of podcast hosts. So that is it for uh, this episode of Church in Maine. Remember again to rate and review this episode on your favorite podcast app so that others can find the podcast and consider donating so that um, I can continue to produce more episodes. And again, I'm Dennis Sanders, your host. Thank you so much for listening. Take care, Godspeed, and I will see you very soon. Hey.